Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast, where we discuss the art and craft of game design. I am Josh Beiser, and we got a great cast for you tonight. I'm going to be talking to the game designer over at Pyrodactyl Games. He has made titles such as Good Robot, Unrest, and other ones as well. And our main topic for this evening will be discussing the challenges of combining action and RPG elements into a single game. So please welcome to the cast, Arvin. Hey, everyone. Hi, Arvin. It is a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. We have an incredible time zone difference here. So I, I know. <laughs> For uh, people listening to us right now, Arvind is in India, and when we are talking, there is a nine-and-a-half-hour nine time difference between the two of us here. So <laughs> this was definitely an interesting one to plan. I don't think this is the like the weirdest one. I, I'm trying to remember if I did – if Australia was any different, but it's been so long since we've I've spoken to that developer. <laughs> huh. But uh, thank you so much for reaching out on Twitter. And yeah, this is going to be a very interesting topic, to say the least. But uh, since this is your first time on the cast, I always like to give new... Uh, ooh, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. Three, two, one. But yeah, it's great to have you on. And since this is your first time on the cast, I always like to have new guests kind of begin by talking a little bit about themselves and what their background is when it comes to game development. So I'm an indie game developer. Uh, my educational background is is a computer science degree. But while I was in the second year of, of college, I started making games. I was... Uh, very involved in the Half-Life 2 modding scene for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a... I worked on a bunch of mods, most of them, which, you know, did not get completed as, as it was in the day. Uh, and eventually I started making uh, games on my own. Uh, and my background in, like, in, in the sense of design is pretty, uh, like, I would say, like, you know, homebrew, like self-taught yeah. kind kind of thing because I more or less just started making games as in like, hey, I want to play a game like this so I, I should make it. So uh, for example, the first game I made was called Atypical RPG. Uh, it was uh, an adventure game which was set in college and it was basically about somebody trying to get through college you know, and like mm -hmm. face all the various challenges, trying to divide time. So it was kind of like it had this uh, sort of conversation-y time management aspect to it. It's kind of hard hard to define because more or less this game was what I I wanted to make at that that time. But we uh, moving on, uh, the the second game I made was a mashup of a beat em up and an RPG. And it was this game that kind of, you know, made me reply to your tweet. Mm -hmm. And like, because the topic felt like, I felt like I've done some stuff on this. Uh, and then after that, I made Unrest, which was in a more conventional, like, RPG. And then Good Robot, which was like a roguelike with RPG elements. I mean, you know, roguelikes do tend yeah. to have RPG elements, but yeah. Mm -hmm. but, so that's kind of my background. 
like very short version of it. <laughs> How long have you been making games for? Uh, almost nine years. So I started making games in 2009. So almost nine years. Mm-hmm. Now, I've spoken to a few developers in India. I believe um, it was the developers behind Asura and uh, mm-hmm. what was his name? Uh, Rahul Sagai, who did um, mm-hmm. A Quest for Light. And I was just wondering, like, from where you're at, Arvin, how has, I guess, game development grown in India mm-hmm. since you got started? Um, I mean, when I got started, there was... I think there was one Facebook group and it had maybe like a hundred people who were interested in making games, something like that. And I remember posting a, a rough video of of my game there, which I made in Movie Maker. <laughs> and it like at that time, it got an, a very amazing response. Everyone was like, oh my God, you know, like it's so awesome to see some games being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared that to now, like the mobile game industry has exploded here. So... That almost every major studio has some offices of some type here. Like I'm not very clued into the scene, but uh, I like I know people who work at Zynga, at EA, at Ubisoft, and all of them have studios here in India. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely like it feels like the scene is like growing at a pretty fast pace. It's kind of hard to keep up. Oh, that's definitely good to hear. I know when I spoke with uh, Rahul a few years, I think it was like a year, maybe two years ago, he was talking about the very much the same thing and how mobile game development has really grown in India. I guess for you, Arvin, do you prefer to make games on mobile or do you make them like on like PC, Mac, or else? Yeah. Uh, all of my games have been on the PC mm-hmm. because that's... Uh, where I started, like I, I was a big PC gamer, still am. So that's kind of always where I wanted to go. And I was lucky enough that uh, my third game did reasonably well for me to sustain myself as a independent developer. So like I, I've stuck to the PC. Uh, like every platform has its challenges. Uh, but for me, like, you know, right now PC is the one that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. So good, and I have a new question I want to ask uh, my guests whenever we talk internationally. Just from a previous podcast I did, in terms of I guess like education or teaching people about game design, how are things in India at the moment? So funnily enough, uh, last year I was a game design teacher at a college, which was teaching students uh, like it was an arts degree okay. in game design. So. Uh, I think it was maybe like the first or second college of its type in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, more and more colleges are coming up in this, but it, I would say like formal education in the art of game design is still quite new here. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's been enough, it's been very interesting to see things in the mm-hmm. United States along those lines. For mm-hmm. people who listen to previous casts that we've done, you know that when I was in college back in 2004, 2005, nobody mm-hmm. thought about having anything game design related formally. You would go to school as a programmer or as an artist, and then you would apply those skills, uh, you know, off school into game development. But 
we are seeing more of those pushes towards trying to have a formal education when it comes to game design. That in of itself could be its own topic easily when it comes to these mm-hmm. kinds of discussions because there really isn't, I think, any kind of like formal way to say you are now a game developer. You know, go out and make video games for a living. Yeah. Yeah. And like this was something which even I faced when I was uh, teaching students. So the it's really hard to uh, you know condense game design knowledge into something that you can teach in like you know two two classes a week. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, if you look at like look take for example making a board game, traditional cardboard, nothing digital, right? Mm-hmm. And you and you look at some of the uh, like you know the newest games that are coming out in the free to play segment where everything is metrics driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, like those two things are both technically game design, but uh, you know to to kind of teach teach a, a undergraduate student like about them in like you know very limited time. It's it's kind of it's I would say it's definitely like challenging, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it is pretty interesting too. So uh, I mean I think this could be a topic in itself like. <laughs> oh yeah definitely that could be something uh yeah. maybe in the future we can come back to or have you back on to discuss mm. yeah but mm. yeah it's definitely yeah, sure. yeah it's definitely a major issue i do want to just uh get my thoughts on because again if we're not careful again this nine and a half hour time difference may come back yeah. to bite us in like a few <laughs> hours of us sitting here talking yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, it's always been tough to try and nail down what exactly is good game design. Because as we've said, programming and art, they are hard skills. You can teach someone, you know, good programming logic. You can teach someone how to draw or paint. But how do you teach someone, like, what makes a good platformer? Why do people love Mario games still? It's all, like, very high-level discussions. Hmm. Yeah, and so much of it is uh, like you know, like, like psychological or based on perception. Mm-hmm. In that, uh, this is often something which, uh, like, uh, in the first year of like the the newest students, I would get, I would have to uh, kind of get them to unlearn the way they talked about games because mm-hmm. so often, you know, when when kids they come in and they are like, oh, I want to make games. They, <laughs> they talk in absolutes. They're like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is bad. Mm-hmm. Counter-Strike is good. Candy Crush is bad. You know, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But in terms of game design, so much of it is, is subjective that it's really, uh, I feel like getting the mindset, like, like, t- like imprinting the mindset of a game designer into students mm-hmm. is probably more challenging than actually teaching <laughs> game design itself. I don't know. What do you think? But yeah, I think that's a very interesting point, Arvin, especially when we talk about like the greater sense of what game journalism and game coverage has done towards the medium. Cause I've said this mm-hmm. before and I'll probably keep saying this in the years to come that there's always been that divide between the people who make video games and the people who review or talk about them. And it's very hard, I think, to try, as you said, like unlearn that, to say that, oh, this game sucks or some of my yeah. favorites, like developers are lazy. You can just do multiplayer mm-hmm. in like a weekend or <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. as you said, a lot of it is psychological. We uh, There is a really interesting uh, tweet uh, Twitter that 
thread that was going around, I think, earlier this year about uh, psychological tricks game developers use to get people invested mm-hmm. in games. Even something as simple as, oh, here's a very interesting one that I'm sure you're well aware of, the challenges of probability and educating people mm-hmm. about that. Because I'm sure you, yeah. as well as I have, have always heard, oh, it says I have an 80% chance to hit, but I missed twice in a row, so therefore this game is broken. That kind of discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probability is like, uh, like the way we perceive probability versus probability as it actually happens mm-hmm. is is very different. Like, we, we I had an exercise where we basically did this, uh, you know, like students coded a simple random number generator mm-hmm. and then we did some XCOM style probabilities you know <laughs> like oh it's a 65% chance to hit this guy mm-hmm. and so many of them expected that oh yeah like you know I will hit this this person because it's 65% you know it's, it's like <laughs> we are like two thirds of the way there so it is definitely uh, even not just probability but I remember this Twitter thread actually because I remember there was this huge, uh, at least some players like said something like, you know, they felt betrayed that developers would like, you know, cut these corners. Like mm-hmm. a big part of this was often like, you know, when you make an RPG, you you cannot possibly make the, the, the world as detailed as something like the real world, mm-hmm. right? Or even a fictional world with a, with a, like, you know, 10 novels written in it or, or something like that. So developers will often hint at things that might be happening off screen, you know, using character dialogue, yep. using NPCs that refer to events that might have happened or like choices, like giving you choices, which don't really do anything, but they kind of let you express yourself and mm-hmm. find your place in the world. So, and even that, like players were like, Oh my God, I could not like, how, how is this? I did not know developers did this. And it's so strange considering I mean, imagine if, like, on a movie set, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody looks at a movie set and they're like, oh my God, Stark Tower is not a real tower. <laughs> I feel betrayed by this movie. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting, actually. I think this, this is kind of a symptom of the game, uh, like, you know, game design in general, not being in the public spotlight yes. in the same, uh, for the same time, I would say. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. And even the industry itself has this habit of like, you know, guarding its secrets. Mm-hmm. So uh, like if, if you if you want to look, like read essays about like, you know, how does a, how does a famous director make their films? You'll probably get a lot of information, perhaps even from the director themselves. Mm-hmm. But if I want to know how a famous game designer makes games like, you know, it's, it's the, the material there is relatively scares so yeah definitely i mean that's another really good topic it was kind of one of the reasons i started doing game wisdom back in 2012 was that there really aren't a lot of credible sources for understanding game design most major websites don't cover that information it's not as uh, popular as you know top 10 fortnite <laughs> tips or stuff like that and yeah yeah it's I think it's also one of the reasons why I've been doing more in terms of presentations is that it's kind of a way of demystifying that for a lot of people. Because as you said, and with uh, the courses that you taught, that a lot of people don't understand what goes into a video game. 
like so many consumers will look at a video game that has bugs or may not be like one percent perfect and think, oh, developers are just shot. You know, they, you know, they just you know threw this together. It's just a, a slapdash uh, project. But it takes so much to make a video game, even if it's not you know one hundred percent perfect, and. It's just very hard to get a lot of these fine details across to the general consumer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 I, like I don't know if if I should talk more about this because I feel like we will, you yeah. know, like go off off time or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, I do agree. It is yeah, uh, like there is a a huge gap in the knowledge between how like like game designers view games versus how they're viewed generally and there isn't really a lot of content that helps bridge that gap yeah like a lot of people even though they don't make films themselves uh, and i hate to keep bringing films into this but it's mm-hmm. like the most like you know easiest mm-hmm. means of comparison is that they they can be aware of filmmaking they know how to like you know what is a camera cut <laughs> yeah what what is like you know certain techniques like that in game design, not so much. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, I agree, Yarvin. If we're not careful, we'll be here for like another two to three hours just talking about this. <laughs> and yeah, this yeah. would definitely be a, a live cast worthy topic. We can somehow yeah. get the times around because I think because I again, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people would come in and just ask us questions about this, whether they are mm-hmm. students or just people who play games generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think with that said, we'll try to bring things back to kind of our main topic. And I guess here's my question that will kind of segue in. What attracted you to making um, RPG-based titles or roguelikes, uh, roguelike-based titles? So uh, I have always liked RPGs. So I'm, I'm more of a uh, – like I, I, the reason why I, I played games – uh, was always uh, like I would say that back in the day when when I was still in school, I would say that I played games for the story, you know. Mm-hmm. So narrative and like discovering new things are what usually attracts me to 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 playing games. So that is kind of the reason why I started making RPGs because you know, uh, like I when I started making games, I was a college student who had roughly zero idea about what goes into making a game so i went with hey let's make an rpg you know as as most kids do i mean thank mm-hmm. god it wasn't an, an mmo but you know it was fairly mm-hmm. close so uh yeah the, the reason why i started making rpgs was my love for playing them but as i started uh like as i made one game and then another game i realized that there is that I like to view games as like systems that are interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. And RPGs are just the perfect thing for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have systems that are completely abstract and you can have systems that, that aim to be realistic and you can even have a mixture of the two. It's It allows like as a developer and like, you know, somebody who wants to do creative things, RPGs allow like you to basically make whatever kind of game you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. As as an example, uh, conversations have been... Like, I, I'm really interested in the idea of simulating human conversations. Uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, some 
like chat you know like how dialogue trees mm. are an inherently limited and you know like yeah. it, dialogue trees don't really mimic the way people talk oh yes right and like with a with an expertly crafted dialogue tree you don't notice that or you might just like you know suspend your disbelief that okay i am commander shepherd or i am gerald and this, these are the things that they would say hmm. right but i like for me the holy grail has always been you know th- that conversation where you are able to say whatever you want hmm. and the game can somehow adapt that now obviously that is is like it's a holy grail it's probably not going to happen anytime soon but so a way i simulated conversations in the games i made is by trying to incorporate tone and body language into it so i made a game called will fight for food super actual sellout game of the hour it was a comedy game uh and the game was about a professional wrestler who lost the biggest fight of his life and then you know now he's trying to claw his way back to stardom you know back to where he was mm-hmm. so now uh, the way i approached conversation in, uh, so just as an aside uh, are you familiar with pro wrestling a uh, little bit but i don't follow it like mainstream okay so basically uh, i mean i'm sure if if you've seen some pro wrestling there is the part where the the guy is just standing in the in the middle of the ring and he's just saying stuff yeah. you know he's like trash talking his opponent he's mm-hmm. talking about how big his next fight is and whatever right yeah so uh so what i tried to do was i tried to approach conversation from that perspective like how would a pro a pro wrestler talk if all of like if if the uh, so in in that game the 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 entire city is basically obsessed with pro wrestling every like everybody is is talking like about pro wrestling all the time and the world follows the rules of pro wrestling so that is how i approached conversation in that so what you basically do is that when you are talking to someone uh, at certain points you can select your body language and tone mm. and at that point what you say like you know the the actual contents of what you say almost matters very little compared to how you're saying it so you know like you want to intimidate some guy so you will try to be like oh yeah you know like <laughs> uh this is me making a very bad impression of being intimidating but you get the point yeah right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so oh go ahead now so so yeah the, what coming back to the rpg like what got me into rpg's part this is just one example so i think rpgs are great in the sense that you can put whatever systems you want in them you can kind of start from the like you know instead of st- starting from the from the high level like this this game is based on this i want to tell a story about that you can start from the systems and kind of see where that takes you so that is what draws me to rpgs mhm and a lot of really good discussion there are in about that kind of rpg based design cuz we've talked about this many times here in the videos i've done that one of the key elements of rpg development is obviously being is the abstraction layer and as you said you can abstract anything 
If you want to abstract, you know, somebody's hunger, how happy they are because a character gave them a gift, you know, are they annoyed that the waiter didn't give them their food at the yeah. right time? You can do anything you want. And I'm sure, uh, as you are, as we're both aware of, there are tons of RPGs, especially in the independent space, who are doing different elements in terms of their design along those uh, elements when it comes to what they want to properly convey. Um, I spoke to two developers, one written and one on a podcast. Uh, one wanted to make an RPG about uh, simulating uh, the stress of war and conflict mm-hmm. when it comes to individual soldiers. And another one is doing more on like the emotional side. And again, these are two completely different designs, and they all still fall under this umbrella of RPG development. Hmm. But yeah, the, the, I mean, I think, and uh, like when when I play an RPG, right? For me, it's almost like, uh, like you know, stepping into the mind of whoever made it. In that you can even like depending on how systems interact, even something simple like crafting. You can kind of get a sense of of how a person might approach systems, like you know how do they think, uh, like something like you know like how do they think an economy works. Mm-hmm. So even that part is pretty interesting. Yep, and just as you said, every game in terms of its underlying systems can be different. This has been a major yeah. element of JRPG design. That we have yeah. seen many, and I do mean many JRPGs, that mm-hmm. they may all have a turn-based formula, but it can be completely different in terms of what they're testing the player and just how things are built on top of that foundation. Yep. Now, uh, before we get to our uh, main topic, I have a perfect way to get in there. Uh, for you, Arvin, uh, what kind of RPGs do you generally play? Or like, what are some of your favorite games that have inspired you? Hmm. So, uh, the probably the the game that has inspired me the me the most is Deus Ex, mm-hmm. the original one. So, uh, and uh, uh, even I. There were some very uh, strange RPG Maker games I played back in the day. There was this RPG Maker game I made. I played by someone called uh, Indinera, who was like he made a like you know it was an RPG Maker game made with RPG Maker assets. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know if it's still available for download, but it was a game called Laxius Power, which was like about you know like this traditional RPG journey through. Like, you know, a bunch of kids gather and then they travel from one end of mm-hmm. the world to another. Final Fantasy X is another big one. So, uh, and tons of them actually. Like, I, it's it's weird. Like, normally I would be able to tell you, but right now I just <laughs> can't think of them on the spot. Yeah, I know. I have that same feeling. I've played so many games that my brain just yeah. shuts down when I try to remember all the ones I've played for like a specific example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, in terms of design, I, I always like love the whole uh, like you know immersive sim mm-hmm. approach. So even though like I I like immersive sims 
a lot of like you know like like again this is like a matter of opinion but people te- like tend to think that an immersive sim should simulate reality to some extent but i don't think that's really the case like as long as it simulates some reality mm-hmm. and it's consistent within itself then i think it qualifies as an immersive sim mm-hmm. but yeah like again this is like an aside so yeah and again that's another uh, topic we could easily jump into we're not careful yeah <laughs> But um, getting back to the idea of RPGs and the abstraction side of things, one of the more interesting elements that we saw develop over the last decade was kind of that merging between action and RPG-based designs, where it's no longer just about you know, fully turn-based abstracted combat or content, but trying to merge that with giving the player more involvement. Now, for retro fans listening, of course, we know that there have been games in the 90s that have tried to do things to some extent, whether it was as simple as like Super Mario RPG, where a correct timing of the 8 button would cause more damage or reduce incoming damage. But we have certainly seen developers try and bring these two different designs together, whether it's as simple as having um, RPG-style progression in Call of Duty, or getting more complicated with titles like The Witcher, Borderlands, and even something like Dark Souls, wherein the player is in complete control, but there is still this RPG layer be underneath them that dictates you know how much damage they do how much damage they'll take and it becomes a very interesting prospect because usually these two elements are separate again i remember playing games that are either pure action or pure rpg like we don't see a uh, probability in a game like contra or super mario world yeah so uh, with that said, I guess to begin this part of our conversation, Arvin, when it comes to the two, action and RPG, I guess, where do you fall on like how much they should impact a system? Like, If we're talking about a game that's trying to do both at the same time, do you feel that the player should be more control, or should the abstraction layer or the RPG elements should have a greater factor? Uh, I mean, I think it depends on your design goals, right? I mean, mm-hmm. with as with so many things in game design, there isn't really one answer. Uh, traditionally, RPGs do have the, like, you know, um, like in pe- pen and paper RPGs, there is this thing that, you know, it shouldn't matter if you're good at rolling dice, right? You know, mm-hmm. so RPGs have traditionally come in from the perspective of abstracting away any dexterity based elements. But uh, I mean, in the in the realm of video games, it's it's pretty interesting because, like you said, Dark Souls, right? It it's it's a game where you can max out your stats and armor and so such things. But if you don't master the the dexterity part of it, mm-hmm. then you still probably are not going to win. So I mean, it, it I I don't I don't think I have a particular. Uh, you know, like, like preference for this. It kind of depends on the the style of game you're making. So, if if we take a look at uh, some of the games I made, so I'm, I will compare two of them. Uh, so one of them is Good Robot, which was like a roguelike, a shoot 'em up that had that was a roguelike. 
So in a shoot 'em up, you fundamentally have to be good at dodging bullets and shooting enemies. So even if your your bullets do a, do a lot more damage or if your bullets do less damage, fundamentally you still have to hit enemies in order to deal damage. So uh, the idea behind that was to let the players customize the way they want to shoot enemies you know the so somebody wants to get up close with to to the enemy and use the shotgun so then okay here's some upgrades so that you can have more health so you you have some room for error if a player wants to stay afar then they have things which let them see further away and so on so the the philosophy behind that part was to let the player customize the way they want to approach the action part of the gameplay uh mm-hmm. and then there is the more traditional rpg where the idea is that uh at least i feel that games which which uh, demand less uh, like you know reflexes from the player are probably more accessible so when i was making unrest i was i wanted to make the game a lot a lot more accessible even to players who had not played uh, like you know an rpg before so as a result the game does not really have a a heavy action element to it it's mostly just walking around and talking to people so i think it it like it it really depends on the design goals like with unrest the major impetus was to like you know tell a story and let the player make key decisions in the story to to customize the narrative Mm-hmm. So, I think fundamentally, it's it's a question of that. Yeah, I think for like myself, and again, fans who are listening probably know what I'm going to talk about next. That like when there is action elements, when you give the player control, I always prefer the action side. Like I prefer have myself be the key force and whether or not I succeed or fail. I think it's one of the reasons why I was always drawn to the Dark Souls series as opposed to something like Fallout 3 and 4 or The Witcher where while the player is controlling their character it's in real time the RPG layer is still the major factor such as when I play Fallout if I aim my gun and I pull the trigger it may show my uh, uh, crosshair on that enemy and the bullet hits, but everything from my perception stat to my handgun mastery to the enemy's defense is going to determine whether or not I actually hit that guy. Yeah. It, it's it's uh, like when you mentioned Fallout, uh, it kind of reminded me of, of this uh, train of thought that I had. So what, what I was thinking that perhaps... Uh, games like Fallout, Fallout Three, Fallout New Vegas, and you know the the uh, Fallout Four, and even The Witcher. I perhaps like the reason they are quite a lot popular is because they they kind of simulate all aspects of uh, of your gaming personality. Like because I'm saying gaming personality because I don't have words for it. So <laughs> I noticed that like as I was analyzing my play through all of these series, I. Like so, what I would do is I would spend some time optimizing my my loadout, my, my build. Like, okay, here's what I can carry, here's what I'll store, and then when I'm kind of done with that, I'm like, okay, let's go shoot some guys, or, or like you know, let's let's go do this quest. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this ebb and flow 
of like strategy like you know the, the planning part and the the gameplay part and in in the witcher for example this is very neatly laid out like like you if you want to fight something you will be like okay i need this portion that portion so first you will craft that stuff and then you will go and fight the thing and then once you fight the thing you'll get some story bits maybe a couple dialogue choices so i feel like this is kind of like a it's it's like the the pizza of game design you know it has all the toppings <laughs> mhm and it can be really hard i think to balance those two distinct areas as you said earlier with something like dark souls you can have someone build the perfectly optimized build for any challenge but if you don't know how to properly uh, time dodges and parrying you will not get far in that game no matter what your character's level is and I guess here's one of the more interesting aspects when we talk about this marrying of action and RPG-based design. Because like we said, we've seen developers go in all different directions when it comes to even just talking about RPG, let alone the action formula or the action-based systems. And um, when like going back to the Fallout example, like to me, the flip side of that coin would be something like Borderlands, which... Both games, Fallout and Borderlands, are first-person shooters. But again, there is a fundamental difference in how the gameplay is determined based on those RPG layers. I guess, have you had a chance to play a title like Borderlands, and do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I've played Borderlands 1 and 2. Uh, so, yeah, I think fundamentally, Borderlands approaches... Uh, like, uh, it's... It, I would say Borderlands is like a FPS first and mm-hmm. RPG second and Fallout is like an RPG first and FPS second. So I think like when you are designing a game like this you have to uh like at some point make a decision that says okay here's the the importance of here's the level of importance that like you know sk- sk- uh, aiming is going to play in my game let's say. And here's the the level of importance that strategic planning is going to to take place. So in Borderlands most of the RPG elements they happen on your level up screen. Right? Mm-hmm. Because uh and the guns that you get even though they are the possibilities are quite a lot but you don't really choose most of the time what gun you get. Right? I mean you as you play Borderlands you'll kind of end up having a decent gun of everything. So you'll probably have like a shotgun, you'll probably have a sniper. So fundamentally Borderlands is still about okay here's a video game level now you have eight types of guns how will you complete this level right so whereas compared to Fallout where it's more about uh, I mean you can obviously just shoot through things if you want to but there is sometimes an option of stealth and stealth is like a thing which like RPGs have struggled so much mm-hmm. because like you know, a, like a, a stealth game requires like so much work that stealth in RPGs ends up being like this binary flip thing. Mm-hmm. But 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 yeah, any like it, games like Fallout when they try to be uh, like RPGs first, they try to provide you options other than combat. And I think that fundamentally is is the the reason why they they end up feeling so different, even though they have the same elements, mm-hmm. because. 
when you are trying to design a quest in fallout you're thinking okay what if a player wants to do this quest without any combat what if a player wants to do this quest with minimal combat or what if the the player has this companion or pet and how does that affect the quest so i i think that was probably the reason why it's these games tend to fall back more towards the stats because the idea is that if the player wants to perform stealth they will have a build that supports that stealth and so it's probably better to to let like you know have that more power over the, the exact nature of the the sneaking like you know the exact mm-hmm. skill that the player is using while sneaking mm-hmm. and i'm glad you mentioned stealth design earlier you were talking about mm-hmm. ion storm with deus ex cuz that's another very interesting point again about marrying action and abstraction based design cuz as you were just saying one of the key differences or one of like the major philosophies is how much the RPG layer is actually going to matter and again depending upon the game you talk about this can be a vastly different discussion when we look at games like uh, Splinter Cell uh, Thief uh, Dishonored and stuff along those lines the stealth aspect is entirely in the player's side it's not a case of I need to upgrade my stealth skill and then enemies won't see me it's you know if I stand in the middle of broad daylight every card's gonna spot me but we have seen games, especially what you mentioned earlier in terms of the immersive sim genre, that they will abstract those action-based elements. Um, going back to twenty, I think it's twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen with Prey, for instance, that this is a game where if you want to run faster, you want to be better at platforming. It's not so much on you as the player. You need to upgrade your jump skill. You need to upgrade your yeah. ability to run. And then those yeah. things will change how you play. And again, that's a different story compared to a game like Borderlands where, as you said, the guns are impacting things. But at the end of the day, if you can't aim your gun at an enemy's head, it doesn't matter how great your weapon is. Yeah. So I guess with that point – oh, go ahead. No, uh no sorry, like uh sorry, I lost my train of thought. Never mind. <laughs> okay. Uh but uh, the question I was going to ask you, maybe this will bring it back is when you kind of lock elements like that from the player built into the abstraction, like you're playing like imagine playing a platformer that tells you, "Oh, you want to be able to do a running jump? Well, you need to hit level 5 before you unlock that ability." Like, I think, as you said, it just really has to do with how the player perceives or how the RPG is presented that may determine things. So, like, what do you think about that side of things? I think, uh, again, it's it, like like the, the exact importance of action and such is, is fundamentally dependent on, uh, like, you know, how the game designer wants the player to approach the game. So, often uh, things like these, you know, like the, this idea of, uh, like restricting player abilities by level or uh, and aside to that uh, this technique is also used in metroidvanias mm-hmm. to ensure that the player progression is still directed so in like often in metroidvanias you'll probably find like a door you cannot get past or a or a, a, a chasm that you cannot jump across so the idea is that the designer thinks okay i want the player to go here first 
but i'm going to show them what they could be doing later and then so then the player knows that they have to do this in order to 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 do that mm-hmm. right so i think rpgs the and i think you will often see this in rpgs that like you know have a vast world have a lot of quests that the player want to do is that the designer still wants to enforce some amount of linearity to the experience because if you had a world where the player could go at like you know anywhere right from the start then it's really hard to kind of direct that experience and you like and you might want to make enemies that are more difficult to beat that require certain like mastery of the system itself and you probably don't want the player to immediately stumble upon them uh, like a, a key example of this is when in new vegas there are two like it looks like there are two routes you can take to the to the to the big city but one of them is filled with death claws and like that's not really a route you go there you get killed and then you're like okay let me take the other route so i think it's also a measure of that often uh, like when your game puts these num- like you know the systems first as opposed to player skill it gives the designer a, a little bit more control over what the player like over how the player experiences the game in what order they do things which i think i mean depending on your design goals is a is a pretty pretty big positive mhm yep and trying to i think throw all the stuff together as you said when it comes to gating and progression can be very challenging i guess here's another question for you that i was thinking about as like the complete like antithesis of what we're talking about in terms of action rpg design we can look at like the older style crpg or pen and paper style games that just throw everything in terms of abstraction at the player again anyone who's built a character in fallout or might and magic and etc etc can certainly attest to that and we have seen that level of granularity kind of fade away in favor of again more of a streamlined approach stuff like prey or even more modern rpgs have been trying to streamline how much abstraction or how many details for the player to build like instead of needing like 30 different stats you may just drop it down to maybe four or five key abilities or even the infamous special system that fall has made use of mm-hmm. and i guess uh, for you how or in your opinion how much should like like how much like detail do you think is needed for a game to i guess have quote unquote rpg elements to it and that actually leads me to another question that we'll get to next uh i i don't know if there is like you know a specific cutoff point i guess the choices should impact gameplay mm-hmm. a little bit is what i would say but so much of like you know choices impacting is like perception mm-hmm. and even in my games i've found that often like players will believe it's like they have a lot more like sometimes player, players believe they have a lot more control than they actually do and sometimes players believe they that they like you know they will feel that they have no real agency even though they do have it so this is actually one area where i don't know if i have a clear answer of like what is the exact cut off point mm-hmm. okay 
Yeah, I mean, again, this is all like high level philosophical stuff we're talking about. So yeah. I don't think we're going to be solving anything in the next, uh, let's see, time check, probably in the next like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, again, we could go on for a few more hours, but Arvin will eventually have to go to sleep and I'll eventually have to have dinner too. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. this takes me to the question that I was just thinking about. And as you said, uh, it's very hard to determine that cutoff point. And by extension, it can be very hard to determine what is and isn't an RPG. And probably one of the best examples is, again, going back to this marrying of action RPG elements that we have seen on the AAA side. We have certainly seen our fair share of AAA games, whether they are open world action, uh, first person shooters, and etc., that have tried to call themselves RPG. And uh, there's probably a whole different topic waiting to be discovered here, but one of the things I always find very disingenuous is when we see games like Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed or even God of War say that they are RPGs. And, like, it always drives me a little nutty when I hear someone say, oh, because this game has a skill tree, it's an RPG. Or it has RPG-based elements. And I think there has to be more there in terms of player choice and, again, about what it is you're trying to abstract that basically will determine whether it's an RPG or not. So, I guess, what do you think about things along that front? So, I was... This was this was kind of a joke uh, in the in the forums. Uh, you know, when I, I would interact with the community a lot <laughs> when I was releasing my games, and there was a lot of questions about, wait, is this really an RPG <laughs> or not? So I would I started jokingly calling myself as the leading cause of is it real an RPG <laughs> in the world? So, and I like I don't know if if like it's. It's related here, but uh, it's. I think it, it is a matter of perspective more often than not, because often in a game like God of War, right? Ultimately, you are not really in control of the narrative. I mean, you are in control in the sense that you are the player and you do the actions that progress the narrative. But once, let's say, a cutscene starts, right? Then the game is like, okay, now sit back. I'll tell you what happens then and then when the next gameplay session starts i'll let you know you know so i think often like just because of like uh, traditional expectations and the roots of the genre in, in in paper rpg players tend to want control over the narrative for me i think that fundamentally is the difference between an rpg and a non rpg is that i want some agency in the like you know in the narrative so even if a game let's say has you know 10 different resources skill trees crafting systems npcs all over the world and whatnot but if i'm not really in control of the narrative then for me that game stops being an rpg uh, but at the same time i think this is something which a lot of people have their own definition of mm-hmm. like i'm sure somebody will say that, hey, Watch Dogs had a skill tree. So for me, Watch Dogs <laughs> is an RPG. And I, I mean, ultimately, you know, I think these definitions are like more semantic than anything. So I, I'm like more power to you. If you if you think that this game is an RPG, then I would say sure. 
you know perhaps it's not an rpg that for me but it's it's interesting like all these like because video game uh, notations right they have come in from a completely consumer side of things so back in the days what thing a thing was an rpg because it was like final fantasy mm-hmm. a thing was a shooter because it was like doom <laughs> so people's expectations are like okay it's if this game says it's an fps then it must have a b and c and if this game says it's it's an rpg it needs to have a b and c without any regard for how that interacts with the rest of the game so i think this is one area where games can catch up more like perhaps if we had like you know differentiations between directed narrative and player controlled narrative this would not be a problem but i mean at this point rpg is such a broad term that you know everything has a claim to be an rpg i'm sure somebody out there says halo is an rpg <laughs> and maybe it, it is i i haven't played any beyond halo 3 so <laughs> uh, and if you think that's a uh, tough question there's the second one what is a what's the difference between a roguelike and a roguelite that's another popular one that gets thrown around lately Oh boy. Yeah. Like now this is even tough because if I if I if I get wrong then everyone on the internet will be angry. Mhm. So uh, at least I'll get angry hmm. at you. Usually I, mean, I, I think... av- usually I'm the one who takes the front <laughs> of the uh, anger here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I mean roguelikes traditionally are because like you know they are like rogue. Mm-hmm. So I mean I have seen people say that a game is a roguelike only if it is turn based and it has x y z that that rogue had you know mm-hmm. and rogue light is basically anything that has perma death and persistent elements that persist through multiple playthroughs so this is kind of what i thought was the agreed upon definition but these things change a lot so i'm not sure how it's going now mm-hmm. but i would say that's fundamentally like maybe a rogue like is like to call yourself a rogue like is a lot more strict you need to be like rogue but a rogue light is basically anything that is like hey you have one life but if you upgrade these things they will stick with your next playthrough <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so don't worry i'm sure the conversation will switch to is call of duty a rogue like next that will be our next big topic <laughs> right there <laughs> yeah but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, getting back to the point you were talking about in terms of how much control you have or the narrative for an rpg I think that also plays into a factor of how much control the player has in terms of building their character. Because when we talk about a lot of the quote-unquote RPGs, like your open-world-style games, God of War, etc., that the player is going to pretty much get everything. Like, when I look at a skill tree in, like, Assassin's Creed... Or even something like Watch Dogs, I know I'm getting everything. At some point, it doesn't matter how long I play, I'm going to eventually have so much experience that my character will just be able to do everything. And to me, that's not really an RPG. And I made a video about this for people listening to us live, or I'm sorry, listening to us recorded. This will probably be a few months or even a few weeks, but about customization. Like when I play an ARPG like Grim Dawn or Diablo, I am making hard choices with my character. If I choose skill A, then that means I will never choose skill B 
because I've made that decision. And to me, I think that's a major part of an RPG. And we could even uh, take this further and bring this to the storytelling side, that when you make a choice deciding you know, who to follow or what quest to do in a very challenging RPG, that determines how the story plays out. You are changing the narrative of your game, essentially. Hmm. Yeah, that is an interesting uh, like thing, too. Like, you know, the part about... Uh, like having control over the character because it reminds me of Wasteland 2. Mm-hmm. So when I was playing Wasteland 2, uh, one thing which felt really odd to me was that the game allows you to make a whole party from the get-go. So you make four characters and the story isn't really told as if you are a party of four characters. It's more like those four characters are the player combined. Mm-hmm. Right? So you end up in a scenario where you level up all four characters and you naturally specialize them to complement each other. And that ends up kind of taking away the agency, like at least for me, because what for me, what how Wasteland 2 ended up was that I had I had somebody who was good at everything because I had distributed my skills perfectly. I One character was a long range fighter. One character was a close range fighter and so on. So it ended up being like the super character Mm -hmm. who was good at everything. And if I needed deception, let's say, I would just select the guy who had deception and use him to do the conversation. And if I needed somebody who was good at mechanics, then I would take the other character and then she would do Mm -hmm. it. So I think it's also like sometimes letting players customize every aspect like detracts from an RPG, I feel. Because in theory... This is like the, this is going straight to the tabletop route, right? Where it's four custom characters and you you are free to do whatever you want. But it's missing the part where other players are in the picture. And in tabletop RPGs, some of the most fun moments happen when other players make decisions that you would not make if you were in their position, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm getting at, yeah. right? So it's... I think it's interesting. I don't think it's just like having control over every aspect is necessarily good for RPGs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as I was saying, yeah, I agree with you, Arvin, about that. Like, again, mm-hmm. one of the big differences between like classic and modern RPGs is just how many decisions or control you have over your character. You mentioned Wasteland 2. I played an RPG, um, I think it was called Underrail, this was like an indie RPG that came out a few years ago. And the very first thing when I load that game up is they want me to define every aspect of my character, you know, down to what my uh, handgun reloading accuracy or handgun reloading rate is, you know, like so much granularity in terms of those details that it just I go into like a you know deer in the headlights like I don't know what I'm doing and as you said it's very important to kind of balance just how much you want to essentially let the player see behind the scenes because one of the beauties of abstraction I know we mentioned this a little bit earlier is that you don't need to give the player the exact mathematical formula as to how damage is calculated you can just simply say, this weapon has an 18 in damage, 
this weapon has a 25 in damage. So, the 25 is greater than 18, this weapon is stronger. I think for RPG design, it's, uh, I think fundamentally it's it's about uh, the, the, like when I want to design an RPG, I always try to imagine like at a high level, what what feelings do I want the player to to feel as they're playing? Like you know, like the so let's say I'm making an RPG which is all about, uh, like for example, you are on a SWAT team, right? But I want to make it an RPG. So at a high level, while making that RPG, I decide that okay, the two most important parts of this RPG are going to be how good you are at shooting things. And your how your relationship is with your other SWAT team members, right? And then I, 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 th- and I think what what is also important is the things that I don't consider important. So let's say I don't consider the, uh, uh, like you know pre- preparing for for the exact terrain important, as as just as an example. So so maybe I I leave that part. I think for RPGs often. The parts that they don't simulate are are equally important to the parts that they do simulate because that if you try to simulate everything again like like you said you end up having the player focus on unimportant things or worse the player just gets confused or overwhelmed and they give mm-hmm. up so it's definitely something interesting and I think that is uh, something which RPG design is kind of di- different compared to normal game design in that let's say you're making a platformer so you already more or less know what things are important in a platformer and what things are not right mm-hmm. uh, compared with an rpg which where you could have you could conceivably have an rpg with very little dialogue but it still allows the player to craft their own narrative and and customize it and so on so it's it's really something which I mean, you know, it's more of an art than a science. I think, like, it's not. It, you can. There's no right approach or wrong approach as such. But yeah, but I think another issue you can run into is that if you give the player like fifty to sixty different things to decide on, how many of those are actually important to the experience? Because we've talked about this before, the idea of false choices, where either an option is so good you would be crazy not to include in your character. Or an option is so bad that you are legitimately making your character worse by trying to use it compared to something else. And and it's another one of those things that makes it very hard when it comes to RPG design. As you said, that how many things do you need to actually abstract or represent before you are just overloading the player in terms of the decision making? Yeah. Yeah. The the part about uh, gameplay elements being strong or weak is actually pretty interesting, because a lot of a lot of uh, tabletop RPG players, you know, they often have this debate about you know how much is optimizing your character good before you are ju- like you know you're meta gaming, yeah. or like some like should your character deliberately take weaker choices because because that is what they would do you know something like that and. I what I personally think is that it is not wrong to want to achieve both like mechanical mastery and narrative mastery in a like general sense. So having things which are just like 
again like the more elements you include the more difficult is it to balance them that's why stealth like dedicated stealth games like dishonored or thief do stealth much better than fallout because fallout designers are focused on the 50000 other things that are not stealth mm-hmm. right so it's 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 i think that uh, like focusing on the things that you consider important is also good good for the game in general because then if you consider that okay in my in my hypothetical swat team game you can either win by shooting things really good or you can win by the power of shit right so you can ma- focus on making those two gameplay paths equally good right or equally viable because i think uh, and again this is something which is commonly repeated in game design is that players will just try to pick the most optimum way to play yeah they won't pick the most fun way to play so you have to make sure that the optimum way is the fun way mm-hmm. and the more systems you include the more difficult it becomes to balance every one of them yeah definitely uh, not not an rpg related example but this is something you often see in collectible card oh, games yeah. so sometimes ccgs have cards that are so good that no matter what type of game you want to play you have to include them in your deck mhm right like infamously there was a card called dr boom in hearthstone oh yes which i don't know if you're aware oh of. yes i'm definitely uh, aware of that one <laughs> yeah so yeah i think fundamentally it's like because ccgs if you look at one card in a ccg it's kind of this miniature gameplay package right mhm it's like when you play that card you will have this type of gameplay right at a very high level so if you look at rpgs like this then the lesser amount of cards you have or the lesser amount of systems you have the better the like the chance you have of balancing them and making sure all of them are equally fun mhm yep and uh ccgs are as you just said Arvin, are a really great example again about the challenges of balancing when it comes to min maxing um as a good case in point right now i'm playing the game the scale of 5 which i'm not sure if you're aware of that franchise uh no i cannot say i am <laughs> uh, the scale series is a strategy role playing game and their big claim to fame is a heavy emphasis on min maxing it's not just you playing this game for 10 to 20 hours it's you figuring out all the ways that you can just essentially break the game in half based on powering up characters, powering up weapons. There's just this whole microcosm of min-max optimization and that's mm-hmm. the inherent draw of this franchise. And in the game like this, there really is no real semblance of balance. If I want to spend the time, I can take a character to level 9999, have them do like 10 billion points of damage a turn, and there's literally nothing that can stop me. But that's a single player game. When we're talking multiplayer or any kind of competitive based game, it's a different story. And your example from Hearthstone with Dr. Boom, that's a great example again of what happens when something is just too good like if you have a car that it's literally better than everything else at the same cost value even better things that are lower in cost why should someone not take that card like we can certainly throw examples of why you sh- should take a card it could be working for a build or a deck yeah. 
But if you have something that literally works 100% of the time and has no downsides, there's no reason why not to take that. And it kind of goes back to, again, like we're, this kind of goes back to like our first part of this conversation earlier when we talk about demystifying game design. And most game developers don't inherently or intentionally design overpowered or broken content. Like, it wouldn't make sense. Why should I build my game and purposely leave something that just ruins everything? But gamers are really good at figuring out these patterns and min-maxing, as we just mentioned. And I cannot count the number of times that somebody who's played a game enough will break it whether it's from a multiplayer standpoint or a single-player standpoint, as we've seen with like the speedrunning community. But uh, keeping this focus back on the CCG or just RPG design, it becomes very hard to know just what exactly, like how will all this stuff factor in? Because as you just said, we've seen RPGs where developers will have like 40 to 50 different choices and options in terms of building your character. There's no way like a team of like 10 or 15 people are balancing all those choices together. <clears throat> and yeah, and not all choices can have the same amount of impact on, on narrative mm-hmm. or on the combat mechanics. So you end up with, often in systems like this, you end up with either like, you know, players figuring out an exploit where certain stats in combination are really mm-hmm. much better than everything else. Or it most stats end up just being like, you know, cosmetics. Like, okay, sure, this will give you 1% extra, mm-hmm. but just stay safe and put all your points in constitution or yeah. dexterity or whatever. So it's, it's definitely interesting. I mean, I this is the kind of great thing about RPGs is that there's no real, I mean, I'm sure somebody will figure out one example of an RPG, which was uh, like, you know, which just nailed that balance perfectly and had like 50,000 stats. So it's, yeah, I, I don't know if, if, I mean, like, I think we, we have moven a little bit away from our original, I've kind of forgotten what that was. <laughs> about uh, talking about uh, like the, I'm sorry, you kind of cut out there. You're talking about the original question or the original topic? Uh, the question. Okay. Yeah. About uh, being able to just, like, is there, like, what were your thoughts on kind of trying to build all these different options and whether or not it's even feasible to balance them considering, you know, like having 40 or 50 different skill trees or uh, leveling up systems? Uh, I mean, balancing systems is definitely like, at least for small teams, it's very difficult because uh, I mean, we have seen this time and time with games is that even if you have, let's say 50 people play testing your game and like making sure everything is at the optimum level. Uh, but when, when 500, 5,000, 500,000 <laughs> players are going to play that game, like you cannot hope to ever compete compete with them. So, I mean, I think it's really not a, like, you know, like something which we, you can hope to achieve. Yeah. So I guess to wrap up this section then, um, 
I guess we've kind of been touching or dancing around this, but like in your opinion, what are some good examples of games that, besides some of the ones we mentioned, like Dark Souls or Borderlands, that have managed to have that marriage between action and RPG design, whether it's focusing on the action side first or the RPG? So uh, I don't know how much of, of the action side it is in things, but Divinity Original mm-hmm. Sin has some really nice uh, things. So even though it is turn-based, it often like you know relies on you you like sometimes using the elements in a certain way. So I think it's definitely uh, kind of it. It definitely has some uh, like focus on mastery. Then there is this game Child of Light, which had this uh, you know kind of like quick quick time ish or rhythm game style uh, button mashing things, which I thought was pretty cool because. Uh, generally, I, I I like to play RPGs like you know without time pressure. Mm-hmm. But this was one combat system where I really enjoyed the whole timing aspect to, of it because, like you know, the the system was pretty intuitive, easy to get, and I was just, uh, you know, like it just clicked clicked with me. Mm-hmm. In a way, then let's. Hmm. Uh, I mean, even Fallout New Vegas, actually. For me, uh, Fallout New Vegas was really, like, fun in the way that some, like, it's in some fights, I would not use the VATS system at all. And just, like, you know, try to play it as a shooter. But in some fights, I would definitely use that in order to get through it. So... I think, yeah, like from the top of my head, these three games, I would say. But I mean, I'm definitely more towards the pure RPG side of things, as you've probably Mm -hmm. uh, guessed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the type of action games I play are actually not very RPG-ish. Like, uh, I mean, it's not an RPG, but, you know, like Metal Gear Rising Revenge. Like Platinum games in general, (laughs) like they they do really cool stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I guess here's my last question for this section, then we'll begin like our general wrap-up for tonight. But one of the things that we've certainly seen in terms of RPG design, or one of the challenges thereof, is getting the proper pacing down. And again, this is probably a little bit too much as, you know, for like a little question, it could probably be its own topic. But, like, for you, Arvin, do you prefer RPGs that, like, really go the distance in terms of length? I'm talking, like, 50 to 100 hour plus? Or do you prefer more, like, the smaller scale? Like, let's say, like, an 8 to 20 hour long experience? I I mean, this... The, if you had asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said I love, like, 100 hour RPGs. But nowadays, I don't really have the time to mm-hmm. play games that are that long. So it's definitely like, uh, I would definitely prefer shorter games. And I think this is general, like I I have seen this happen with a lot of my friends too. It's just like a, you know, when you start playing games, you're like, oh man, I can't wait. What's a hundred hours. Mm -hmm. But then like, as you grow older, you're like, you know, shorter games are not that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely in the same way. I'd rather have something that is more focused and to the point rather than, you know, 100 hours of grinding or repeating like the same sections. Yeah. 
I think there is definitely like good ways of doing these things so the Witcher games mm-hmm. right and I especially Witcher the Witcher for one it had these decisions where you make a story decision and you find out the effects of that like 15 hours later and at that point like you know it it really focuses forces you to commit to whatever you're doing because you, like often in games players will will quick save and then they'll see okay which conversation choice is the best mm-hmm. but in in witcher 1 i remember one choice i made somewhere in the middle of chapter 2 finally playing out at the start of chapter yeah. 4 and like a chapter was like a good 20 hour chunk of gameplay mm-hmm. so that is definitely what i like in terms of narrative choices i think narrative choices like this are good systemic choices i think uh more and more like designers are trying to minimize the at least to prevent the players from making mistakes mm-hmm. that without the appropriate information mm-hmm. like even dungeons and dragons 5th edition right uh, it doesn't really give you a lot of choices for your first three levels your first couple levels are very straightforward and it's assumed that you are basically just learning to play the game at that point and then at level 3 you finally start getting the the full experience of your class and roughly around level 10 ish is when characters start to you know finally feel like okay this is like you know what a wizard is like this is what a barbarian is like and so on mm. so yeah i personally prefer those kind of systems which gradually introduce you like to the various complexities and stuff they have because what i tend to view this as uh so imagine if if i'm a person like i'm a person who has no talent in music and i'm sitting in front of a music mixing desk which has like 50 knobs on it but i have no idea what any <laughs> of them does so for me that's not really a decision mm-hmm. a, a a person who is very invested in the in in music mm-hmm. will tell me that all of these 50 sliders <laughs> are very impactful choices mm-hmm. right but i would appreciate them more if i had the full knowledge yep. 
So I tend to view systems like that. Hmm. Is that choices only really matter when the player knows what's at stake and what's the difference between what they're choosing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I think another thing uh, going back to the Witcher example that I really that I also want to point out that the choice that you're talking about when we talk about a lot of the decisions you made in the Witcher, they were not gameplay affecting choices. As in, if I choose to side with this person, I'm going to get this really badass skill that's going to make the game easier for me. No. It's I choose this person, then my story will go down this line. And I think your uh, example there about like the various uh, commands and knobs on mixing board is another really good example that as someone like it's the same thing like I'll give you my version of that when I'm looking at something like Adobe Premiere or Photoshop where I do video or audio editing there are more functions on that that I will ever need to make one of my videos or to edit something but like the stuff that I do that's important for me and if that stuff gets messed around or altered I'm going to feel it but being able to educate someone about how everything is important and making sure that those choices actually matter are a major part of RPG design, where they're just a major part of pacing and progression in general. And that's another like hour and a half discussion we could jump into. Yeah. But I think with that, let's begin to wrap things up because we're about to hit an hour and a half into the actual recording. And again, I'm sure you have to get to sleep at some point tonight. <laughs> but um, <laughs> here's my final set of questions for you, Arvin, and then we will uh, wrap it up. So for people listening to us right now, what are you currently working on in terms of like as a game project? So I'm currently working on a game called The Redstone, which is a mashup of XCOM and Fire Emblem <laughs> with some uh, like, you know, RPG storyline stuff from based on my previous games. So, Oh, nice. And again, we could certainly get into talking about that. Maybe we'll say that for another cast. Yeah. But I guess with all that said, before I go into my little wrap-up speech, are there any social media or sites you would like to plug if people want to follow you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the best place to follow me is Twitter, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I am on Twitter as at Pyrodactyl Games and at Arvind Rajayadav. And there is uh, my website, pyrodactyl.com, or you can search Pyrodactyl on Steam and buy all of my games. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's about it. All right. Well, I I'm also on Facebook. Oh, yes. Great. And if you want to send me those links, I'll include those in the description of the yeah. podcast down below for people to click on. Yeah. All right. Well, I think with that said, we will wrap things up for today. Arun, it has been a pleasure hanging out with you my afternoon. You're very late at night. I definitely want to wish you the best of luck with your game. Again, uh, for people around here, we all get like, a little ringing on ears when we hear XCOM meets Fire Emblem. So I'm sure I'll we'll be definitely <laughs> interested to check that one out. Yeah. All right. But uh, with that said, for everyone listening, we are going to wrap it up for this week. So thank you so much for listening. As always, if you like support Game Wisdom, we have several options available to be a future podcast 
or writing a piece on GameWisdom.com. We are always looking for new people to reach out to, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. You'll find links under uh, Features Wanted, or just send me an email, josh at game-wisdom.com. If you'd like talking about game design, we would always love to have you on. You can follow me on Twitter at GW Blaster for thoughts and updates throughout the day. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash GWBlaster, where you can help us uh, through donations, which will allow us to grow and add more content for everyone to enjoy. And you'll also find links to our Discord channel, where the first tier is open to everybody. And last but not least, check out the Game Wisdom YouTube channel for daily videos discussing game industry topics, game spotlights, and our live cast with developers or just on game design. But again, Arvin, thank you so much for coming on for the podcast, and I'm sure we will talk again in the future. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It was fun. Not a problem. So with all that said, thanks again for tuning into this episode of the Perceptive Podcast. Tune in next time for another discussion about the art and craft of game design. But until then, take care.